Welcome to All Tomorrow. I'm Mooney Jensen. And I'm Peter Schechter. We're still broadcasting from home, but there's a glimmer of light at the end of the tunnel as the world is opening up city by city. I, for one, Mooney, am happy that even though all this opening up may not be the best thing from a public health point of view, it certainly is necessary for people to, at least for me, to get to see a couple of new people. For the past months, we lived in a world of collapsing economies, declining commodities, struggling financial markets, and a global population that was sort of not allowed or too scared to leave their houses, shuttered schools, shuttered stores, gyms, restaurants, lines at grocery stores, masks while walking dogs, protests and serenades, the best and the worst of human stress, and we've seen it all. And from this environment, China has taken advantage and emerged as the leading actor one way or another. We don't know yet whether it's a villain or a savior. There are differences of opinion, whether China is a victim or a perpetrator, a source of admiration and respect, the target of suspicion, certainly discrimination, and more recently, a global investigation. So today we'll explore how this country, the world's second largest economy, has shifted the global order, reshaped itself in the middle as a geopolitical powerhouse and a business giant as it increasingly faces scrutiny internationally, even as it remains entrenched in an endless, unbearable trade and political war with the United States. But beyond the merely geostrategic, what Mooney and I want to do today is to look at China as a business partner a supplier and a market collaborator. We want to dive into the country's ambitious reforms. We want to take the pulse of global business leaders with regard to its future influence. And above all, we will try to answer the question about whether China is going to come out victor or casualty of the COVID crisis or somewhere in between. And to walk with us in this conversation, we've invited American author, journalist, and businessman James McGregor, a true China expert, based in Shanghai, but currently up in a cabin in the Midwest. Peter, there's a few milestones to measure, both in what's happening in China and the worldview of Xi Jinping. The postponed National People's Congress is taking place. That's a very big deal. It's a very numerous Congress, and it's the ideal platform to frame his rule and secure his ending power beyond 2022. And even as she abandoned the announcement of the yearly hard growth target for economic growth, that's the first time that happens. He has used this platform to lay out a very ambitious plan to stimulate the economy, to promote investment, to mitigate unemployment and reduce uncertainty. So as China recovers quite a few weeks ahead from the COVID crisis, while the rest of the world, as you mentioned, is still struggling with the virus and the confinement, Xi's strategy is a mix of deploying the communist propaganda diplomatic machine and real internal reforms to stimulate foreign investment and growth. Yeah, I mean, Muni, I'll tell you, you know, China is admirable in so many ways. You know, in the midst of this growing trade and political tension with the United States, and while the world is still churning with coronavirus, China has embarked upon this strategic health diplomacy. It, it donates millions of dollars of PPE and medical devices to countries around the world. I just wrote an article about China's spinning health diplomacy in Latin America. It's on Brink News and on the heels of you know other countries' failed responses, donations, and aid by the government and by the Chinese billionaires like Jack Ma, all this has created significant goodwill among countries, particularly among developing countries. And 
you know, with that goodwill goes growing influence and grateful allies. It also seems to be moving hard on the home reform front. China has committed to improving the business environment through a new, uh, more market-friendly foreign investment package, including attractions like their free trade zones, new regulations for market access, updating the Chinese-only list to open new sectors to foreigners at the negative list, the unprecedented move to open the country further to FDI, along with ongoing efforts to climb up the influential doing business scale and other reforms in intellectual property rights. They all sound like real reform. They're recognized in surveys of U.S. and U.K. investors who are now more comfortable with the business climate, at least. And the country appears seriously committed to a more market-friendly approach and stimulate new investment on a formerly you know, bulletproof set of sectors, economic sectors, and also on reducing restrictions. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, they're, they're clearly committed to a PR campaign about the market reforms, but I, I'm not so sure it's all good news for Beijing, you know, the biggest, but not the only challenge to these grand plans is the growing diplomatic and commercial dispute with the United States. And, you know, while China has promised to implement the first phase of the trade deal, Donald Trump's threat to cut ties and, and with an increasingly bipartisan distrust of China that dominates the headlines, I just think there is going to be growing pressure on China. And, it, and, and the U.S. isn't alone. More than 100 countries joined New Zealand in a call for an investigation on China's management of the origins and containment of COVID. There's doubts about Chinese transparency that are echoing in France and Britain and many African countries. In addition, there are outbreaks of racism and discrimination against citizens by Chinese uh, are popping up all, all around the world. And let's not forget, you know, Hong Kong's real and present danger in which its freedom and democracy are now under direct and imminent threat from China by, you know, a law which could find, quote, treason, secession, sedition, and subversion in the territory as something that's arrestable. And, and you know, obviously, who is defining all these things is, is Beijing. And, you know, I, I think we're looking at the death knell for Hong Kong and its future. It's definitely a black star on the communist propaganda regime, on this whole health diplomacy and all the efforts to make China feel like a, a better place to do business. I don't know if the U.S. trade tension is any longer the biggest concern. But let's remember our last episode, Peter, where Richard Haas talked about the inevitable shrinking of globalization. And it's been kind of a, a buzzword, the deglobalization. And this economic renationalization is putting Chinese supply chains in danger. And sure, today, the world's second largest economy, as we mentioned, two months ahead in the COVID calendar, back in business with most companies operating at almost full production and employees are back at work. But worldwide, CEOs are thinking about supply chains and how they can rebuild them into more flexible, more regional structures. Offshoring is turning into nearshoring. Businesses are reeling from shortages of material, manpower, logistics, missing drug truck drivers, ill port workers, border issues, lack of cash to pay their vendors and technological challenges. It's a big, big storm. And these are only some of the roadblocks that will take months or years to reconstruct. Yeah, I mean, I think the supply ruptures that were first noted during the global medical equipment shortage now apply to every sector, medical and pharmaceutical producers, food industry, consumer goods, tech. They're all thinking of 
shifting their supply chains and reducing their dependence on China, particularly for those countries that are not in China for China, but who are in China to compete globally. And they're looking for other competitive sources, and they're considering the, what you call the reshoring or nearshoring. And, and I, I think that a lot of people are predicting that the coronavirus could actually result in substituting global supply chains with regional supply chains. And for example, look at Latin America. It's going to make an argument that it is closer geographically and more aligned with the United States. And so companies need to sort of produce pharmaceuticals and consumer products in Latin America rather than doing that in, in China. Let's hope Latin America gets its act together and steps into this, this, what appears to be an opportunity. But what's amazing in China, Peter, is that this is also happening in tech. So dependence on Chinese technology is not new on workers and plants. It's been a fact for so long, but now is being tested by shortages, delays, lack of transparency, a trust issue. Export restrictions, national security concerns about companies such as Huawei in the U.S. have rerouted the entire industry. And it's now, as you mentioned, countries like Brazil, in other regions, India, step into the vacuum and might be able to offer the U.S. and European companies risk diversification. If you, I don't know how you feel, feel about that. Yeah, I think, and indeed, I'm with you. I sort of hope that's the trend. But I also believe that you know existing supply chains are not just going to break up willy-nilly after all the investment that they've had in, into building those supply chains. They're not going to come down overnight. The COVID crisis has indeed underscored the excessive dependence on Chinese sectors, particularly in tech, pharmaceuticals, medical supplies, but nobody is break off from China economically. And, and you know, I think I think that Xi Jinping wants to play a long game. The big question, has he has he overdone it with all of the aggressive measures? But he, you know, he appears to be intent on checking the right boxes, particularly in the Communist Party Congress, to play over the long term in a difficult field. The big question, is he going to succeed? And so let's ask our guest that question. James McGregor is an American author, journalist, businessman who has lived in China for three decades. He is chairman of APCO Worldwide Greater China. McGregor is the author of numerous books, including No Ancient Wisdom, No Followers, The Challenges of Chinese Authoritarian Capitalism, and One Billion Customers, Lessons from the Front Lines of Doing Business in China. He's a former chairman of the American Chamber of Commerce in China. He's now advisor to AmCham on U.S.-China business and trade politics and policy. Earlier in his career, he served as the Wall Street Journal's bureau chief in Taiwan and as the paper's bureau chief in mainland China. And then later, he was the chief executive of Dow Jones and Company in China. And broadcasting from the Midwest, James McGregor, welcome to Altamar. Uh, well, thank you for having me. I'm up in the uh, woods of northern Minnesota, my lake cabin. That sounds certainly peaceful. So let's let's talk about a subject which only seems to get hotter and hotter and hotter. And you know, Mooney and I, James, have now spent some time debating the basic question, which it, to me is: Has distrust of China now grown? so exponentially that Chinese supply chains are now in danger of disappearing, or the reverse is, will Xi Jinping's reforms be sufficient to reaffirm China's increasing economic and political strength? So let's start with the reforms. And I guess the first question is, are they meaningful? Well, let's see what happens, actually. There's been a lot of meaningful rhetoric so far. 
Um, but what actually gets carried out, we'll have to see. Reform reform rhetoric out of China falls on deaf ears these days with the business community because they've been hearing it for the past few years and they haven't seen a lot of reforms. I personally think we're going to see some significant reforms going forward because China is in dire need right now of keeping its economy going, of holding on to foreign business, and also staying, uh, keeping supply chains as strong as it, as it can. But we're, we're at a paradigm shift here, and we're, we don't know really what it's going to look like at the other end. When you say we're at a paradigm shift, describe that a bit. Well, let's talk about foreign business in China, right? What we have going on right now is companies, foreign companies in China that have businesses in China and they have significant businesses in China, they are in China for China, and they're not going to go anywhere. In fact, they are doubling down, especially in technology, because the best technology companies from the West have the best market share in China because China can't do it uh, at this point. And they have, there's no way they can give up the China market and keep their businesses strong. However, there's other companies that were manufacturing for the globe, had too many eggs in the China basket, and they're going to be shifting more and more manufacturing out of China. And they were ready to do so because China got more and more expensive and they were eating market share to stay in China because the supply chains were so strong and also logistics and shipping out of China were so good and the workforce and so many other reasons. So everything is kind of reordering itself um, at this point. You said that we'll have to see about what the incentives are and what the reforms are. What do you expect in terms of reforms like tax breaks and what type of incentives, stimulus packages? What do you think? they are banking on to try to keep many of the businesses interested? Well, what they're what they're doing so far on the stimulus side is there's more and more special purpose bonds going out to localities um, to keep their economies going. And some of that will get passed down in the form of various incentives to foreign companies in, in those localities. They're also letting companies uh, quit paying social benefit uh, packages um, you know, the Social Security and all that, which is quite 35% of your wages, actually, that you put out in China and various other things. And also then there's this so-called new infrastructure where they're going to be doubling down on Made in China 2025, and they're going to make uh, funds available to foreign companies. Actually, they have been making funds available to foreign companies for Made in China 2025 for a long time. The question is, um, how deep do you want to get into that if it's going to lead to your own demise? Because the end game of Made in China 2025 is Chinese Made in China 2025, and then they come beat you globally. And in terms of a structural reform of FDI and, and direct investment, is there going to be a change that is more market friendly for foreigners? Well, that's what they're saying. I mean, you know, I think one of the things the, the you know, look, I watched the foreign business community become disenchanted with China over the last five to 10 years because more and more the, they were seeing reform and closing. Reform for Chinese companies, closing for foreign companies where China could do the same thing. Uh, what we're seeing out of the National People's Congress, which I think ends today, they're talking about reducing the negative list for both products and services. And that means opening up more sectors uh, in China and more opportunities in China for foreign companies. Um, and let, let's hope they carry it out. Let's see where it goes. And I think with what's going on with the Trump administration and others that are trying to 
keep and the Japanese also who are trying to incentivize their companies to pull out of China. Um, I think China is going to have to have to uh, put forth some real some real incentives. Jim, you have your ear on the ground of the business sector in China. How are national and particularly foreign companies operating? Are they open? Are they open for business? You meet frequently with CEOs in country. How are they dealing with the crisis? Well, they're back in business actually because they've got a two month lead. Um, you know, China recovered while well, the rest of the world is still locked up or trying to unlock. And um, they're seeing uh, they're seeing consumption um, recover domestically. But they're not sure if that is pent up demand or it's going to be steady demand. They're they're really looking at the the first half being a disaster for many companies. However, um, they're they're traveling again. People are back in the offices again. Um, supply chains are, are are fairly strong domestically. When it comes to crossing borders and selling to the outside or bringing in product from the outside, it's a little tough because the rest of the world is not operating um, uh, very strongly. Um, consumer goods, people are saying um, the way you – it's getting like Europe now in China where the way you build your business is you take away somebody else's market share by cutting prices. And uh, there's more and more of that going on. And so companies with cash are really uh, – it's getting – the competition is getting very fierce. So is China betting on the fact that it will become an even sharper competitor for market share, and that's the way that they're going to grow? Well, this is this is companies competing against each other in the China market. Let's face it. You know, you've got Larry Kudlow and others saying uh, we will we'll, we'll give our uh, American companies money to come back and move their supply chains out of China. These people are in China for China, and China's got another half billion people to meet the middle class. And you know, Europe and America will have low growth, if any. Um, so you got to be in China. Uh, and, and so these companies right now are trying to figure out how do we have our in China for China business and how do we have a rest of the world business? Or are we going to have regional businesses? Everybody is sorting this out in real time. But I can tell you, this has slipped into the boardroom. You know, when you used to talk to boards of directors and CEOs, it used to be, how do I overcome my problems in China to expand my business in China? And now they're saying, how do I handle my global risk for even being in China? It's, it's never boring. <laughs> Can I just jump in there? When I mean, you agree that there's an enhanced global risk for even being in China. How do you see that manifesting itself over the next couple of years? Well, it depends on, on how, the, how these governments react, because governments are going to become more and more protectionist, more and more want supply chains at home. And China, um, you know, China has lost trust around the world. You know, you, you talk about Xi Jinping and he's, you know, he's moving ahead with a long game. Well, he's actually overreached, caused a lot of the problems by overdoing things. You know, my uh, my father had a saying, anything worth doing is worth overdoing. And that could be the slogan of the Communist <laughs> Party planners. They've just gone. They've gone too far. You know, look, who lost America? America they had America where they wanted us. China could hack into a major American corporation, steal its technology, and that company would go to the USTR and say, don't do anything. I don't want to mess up my China market share. And so now they've just, I watched this, I watched the, the foreign companies quietly turn against China and they're, they're, they welcome the pushback from the American government. They're, they've got a lot of problems with the way uh, Mr. Trump is doing this, but Hillary would have pushed back also. This has been, you know, this changed slowly and then it changed suddenly. 
But this has been going on for quite a while. It looks though that Xi Jinping is trying to revamp his leadership with this uh, China 2025 initiative, and it does include kind of serious measures at funding industries and creating a better ground for for foreign companies. And there's talk of $63 billion in investment. There's the whole free zone program and other growth initiatives. Could this really work, this overreach? Could it be successful in improving the business climate in China? Well, you know, you got to love the, the, the Communist Party planners because they put it all in black and white. <laughs> and, you know, Made in China 2025's goal is to to adopt their own technology and then get rid of the foreigners. And, and, and do it themselves and then beat them globally. And that's, that's in black and white. And so now it's, okay, let's, you know, how do we build up our, how do we build up our tech sector? What they're doing actually is bad for China because China can innovate. China's got tens of thousands of very talented Chinese people who have gone to the best universities around the world. They work for Siemens, Google, HP, whomever, and and they now uh, have access to unending venture capital money in China and also a government that will help them with market share. If they would just let those people do business fairly and compete around the globe, uh, China could build a world-beating tech sector. But by by making it Top down, we need to dominate. We need to crush. Um, they've they've scared the world, and they're going to slow down their ability to build the top tech sector. So I I get the differentiation that you made, Jim, about the businesses that are in China for China versus businesses who are in China to trade globally. And uh, you know, it seems to me that it's the supply chains in particular. I want to switch to that are going to be affected for those businesses that trade globally. Tell us a little bit in the ways that you're actually seeing that, because, you know, I've also heard from a lot of people that, well, you know, it may be a lot of rhetoric, but the supply chains won't change that much because people are pretty dedicated to to China. I mean, are you actually seeing supply chain shift to reshoring, nearshoring and things like that? I think the better way to look at it is they're re-globalizing. They're deciding, you know, what parts have to be at home, what parts can be around the globe and what parts are needed in China. And I can tell you, the the uh, people, um, companies that are involved in high-end manufacturing and in, in future technologies, whether it's robotics, AI, self-driving cars, electric vehicles, um, people that supply um, components and and uh, chemicals and whatever to those the, those industries, they're doubling down in China. They're bringing more of their supply chain in China. This started with uh, Trump's tariffs, and now it, with with what's going on uh, with COVID and kind of the uh, political uh, um, turbulence of that. They're moving more of that stuff into China because that they believe that's where the market is going to be. You know, my view, my view on on the U.S. trying to block China. Um, uh, you know, the best defense is a good offense. We should be competing. China's pretty smart. Made in China 2025, they've gone out and they've studied all the technologies of the future and they made their plans on how they want to capture them. Hell, we should go study Made in China 2025 and we should, you know, duplicate it ourselves because, um, and actually there's some of this going on. I mean, a lot of nonsense is happening in Washington now with a bunch of, a bunch of bills from, I don't know, Cotton and, 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 Cruz and some of these people that want to position themselves to be the standard bearer after Trump. But there's also some smart stuff going on. Rubio is looking at um, industrial policies, industrial strategies. Schumer came up a week ago with something that um, looks a lot like Made in America 2025. It's called the Endless Frontiers Act, and it's about 
using our own industrial policies to compete and going on America's strength instead of just whining about somebody doing something to us. I completely agree that it seems increasingly that China has become a bipartisan issue. I mean, in, in an America in which you know the parties agree on nothing, it does seem that China and what to do about China, which is you know some people are way out there on sort of just willy nilly near sh- reshoring, but others in a m- much more thoughtful industrial policy platforms. But it's clearly a bipartisan issue. I mean, and you know, I, I guess. One thing I I would from your perch as a as somebody that advises companies, how are companies actually changing the way they're in China? I mean, are they enhanced security measures? Are they changing the mix of employees? You know, is there something that companies need to do if they can make a decision to stay in China to, to change the way they're there? I think for many of them at this point, they look at their their threat being more from their home politicians than they do from China, because China has never been so nice to foreign companies. They are, you know, mayors, party secretaries are going to foreign companies saying, what can we do for you? Uh, well, you know, we want you to stay in China. We need you. I mean, the, the commerce minister at the, um, at the National People's Congress, he gave a press conference where he said that, you know, foreign investment and trade is a driving force in China's growth. He pointed out that 25% of China's tax revenues, 200 million jobs are attributed to foreign trade and foreign investment. Well, they're being welcomed in China. They're also very wary. They're, they, you know, they'll, you know, uh, they'll believe it when they see it on, on getting treated well and how genuine is this. But they're worried about actions from their home governments where there's a lot of politicians a friend of mine told me uh, this was his new uh, vernacular of the cheap China hawk. In Washington, it's uh, the cheap China hawk to somebody that's never been there, doesn't know anything about China, but they are vociferous China hawk. And that's, there's a lot of people like that these days. Speaking of hawks, the U.S. is playing very tough on Huawei. What do you think is going to be the end game for this pretty global fight? Well, I had a, I had a, um, a former um, um, minister level official I talked to in December tell me that um, the whole country was proud of Huawei in the way they're handling this. Um, you know, the, Huawei is China's most important company by a factor of 100. You know, Tencent, Alibaba, they're big companies, but they're toy companies. They do services. They do fun products. They're not core to China's national security and global interests where Huawei is. And so this is an existential fight. Um, we may be able to slow down Huawei. We won't be able to stop Huawei. And also, look, if, 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 if um, American chip companies are blocked from selling to Huawei, if TSMC is blocked from making chips for Huawei, it's going to affect people's businesses very strongly. And there's always workarounds. There's always workarounds. The lawyers are focusing on workarounds right now because, look, in chips, you have American, top American chip companies who have two-thirds of their sales in China or 50% of their sales in China or 40% of their sales in China. If they can't sell in China... Those companies are going to be uh, replaced by Japanese and and Korean companies, and the American stock market is going to go really take a header. So, the the um, the rhetoric in Washington doesn't doesn't fit where business is. This is too much, too late. Ten years ago, maybe, but today, um, this is not the approach. You got to compete against Huawei. How worried are Chinese companies about the trade tensions with the U.S.? Does that disrupt their operations at all, or are they just writing it out? 
Well, I think those with global ambitions and, and um, global businesses are very worried about it. Some of them in China are figuring this may be an opportunity to increase my China market share, have less competition from foreigners. But in, in the balance of that is it's not good because China is at the point where it wants its companies to go global. They want to go global. And China is universally distrusted around the world. Now, we have the, the government is encouraging um, mergers and acquisitions now because they know there's a lot of companies that are wounded by COVID and have financial problems. And so they're focusing on um, Eastern Europe as a foothold for getting into Western Europe. And they're also focusing on Mexico and Canada as a foothold to get into America because they know that in Western Europe and in America, doing acquisitions now are not, is going to be difficult, if not impossible. Let me move to a couple of political questions. I mean, the Communist Party Congress is, has taken place and after being postponed now a couple of times. So how would you read the takeaways of what's, of what's happened? Well, I guess what's happened is they've, um, they've, they, they've been able to move beyond um, the party really messing up on, on COVID in the early days and spreading around the world. Instead, this is uh, that their system is the best, that they've gotten the best handle on this. They've, The country is united in fighting this uh, enemy of this virus, and that the world is um, is turning against is being very unfair to China, and um, you know a lot of nationalism, Um, and it's also about um, you know getting business going again and everybody sticking together and under the inspired and um, remarkable leadership of Xi Jinping. And the fact that they held the Congress um, was a big deal in and of itself. Uh, to show that they're they're ready they're ready to open up, it's a lo- it's all about discipline, you know it's all about discipline in China today. And to have this you know this national security law out of Hong Kong come out of this Congress and and um, kind of blow up, but then from China's point of view and their and their and their propaganda, this is foreign forces trying to unsettle China uh, on what's going on in Hong Kong, and that's going to be a whole nother. Um, uh, focus of, of real tension for quite a while. Yeah, no, I, and that was going to be my, my next question, which was what seems to me as a political junkie, what happened in Hong Kong in the last couple of days is dramatic and will have long lasting implications, but maybe you feel differently. Tell me how, how do you see, not only in terms of suffocating protests and things like that, but in terms of really damaging China's international reputation, do you see this as something serious or... People are just not willing to fight. It's a great cause, but not willing to fight for Hong Kong. Uh, as far as a great cause and fighting for Hong Kong, it's um, it's nice rhetoric, but there's nothing you can do. China's China's all about control, and they couldn't get control of Hong Kong, and so now they've just said, "All right, we don't care what the fallout's going to be. We got to get control." Um, what is what does it mean for Hong Kong? It probably means that Hong Kong is the only Chinese city whose best days are behind it. Foreign business has already largely um, moved out. It's not the right word, but they've, they're not so strong in Hong Kong anymore because the, the regional headquarters for Asia went to Singapore. The headquarters for China went to China. And so Hong Kong is basically a place for lawyers and financial people, um, especially venture capital, investment bankers and private equity who don't want to pay high Chinese taxes. So they live in Hong Kong and they fly up to Hong Kong every uh, China every week and do their business. But 
China needs the stock market. It needs the open information system. It needs the courts, the open, the trusted courts of Hong Kong. That's where the real jeopardy lies right now, because none of that can be replicated under the Chinese system in mainland China. So there is, there is that danger of the financial center. Let me ask you the last question, which is, I mean, it clearly seems that we are entering into a prolonged Cold War period. It began as a competition, turned into a rivalry, and now it's, it's, it's a true Cold War period between the United States and China. Who's going to win it? Uh, I think there's going to be two losers, actually. There, maybe the whole global will, will be a loser. I was, I'm, I, again, in December, when I was around these senior officials, they were very, this before COVID, they were very confident to say, look, we are who we are. We knew a fight with the U.S. was coming. We are who we are. Companies and countries are going to have to learn how to deal with us. On the American side, I think there's a sense of betrayal that the that um, we opened up our schools, our markets, our scholarships, uh, bar, you know, uh, bar associations, trade associations went in and helped China build its legal system. We, you know, China got into WTO, and that that um, there was a lot of goodwill, and none of that's been reciprocated uh, once China got strong. And, I, I, and you know, the Cold War was when the U.S. and the Soviet Union were in a in an all-out fight for whose system was better, um, and you had to destroy the other system in order to survive. I think right now we're looking at basically two development models that are very different, political DNA that's very different, and um, I think we're going to have to find an accommodation. You don't have to love who you who you deal with. You just got to figure out how to deal with them. And hell, we do that with a you know we do that with a lot of other countries and. Uh, it's got to. It, hopefully, we get through this period and uh, cooler heads prevail and um, more um, informed people get involved. But I can tell you, both sides are very um, uh, responsible for what's happening. But if I had to lay the blame on one side more, it would be um, the uh, the party going too far and overreaching. Jim McGregor, those are the last words. Thank you for joining us on Altamar. I'm glad to do it. So, Peter, a lot to think about after this episode, but one question sticks in my head, and it's the Cold War question and whether or not China will win it. I personally think it will. I think it's not necessarily because China's doing all the right things, but because everybody else is doing the wrong things. And mainly, mainly, the I think the long game that China's playing, the reforms that it's trying to implement for the long term are really much more structured and seem a lot more serious than anything I've ever heard coming out of another country. So I believe that the fact that they think, you know, because of the, the way their apparatus work, their ability to think long term right now is very, very useful when everybody's just doing what's urgent. I don't know, Mooney, I think I'm going to wimp out and say that I agree with Jim McGregor, who I think aptly describes the world in which not only the US and China lose, but everybody loses. We're looking at a at a moment in which uh, he, he was so good about describing in the U.S. what is called a certain dis- sense of deception and disappointment with China. We opened the world for them to be part of it. And now they basically screwed us. And there is a bipartisan drive to figure out how to be a better, stronger, tougher adversary of China. And I think that is also going to drive the Chinese to become more anti-American and more distrustful. And we're going to start trying to divide this world. And this is not to the benefit of everybody, anybody, because 
these two powers need to learn how to coexist for a better world rather than to rip each other apart. And so I, I'm more pessimistic than you are. Well, I almost agree with you, but I do have a caveat. It really, a lot of this depends on the other end of the Cold War, on the upcoming election in November in the U.S. And I think that will drive a lot of the Cold War winners and losers. That's all for today. Thank you for joining us on All Tomorrow. See you next time. Mm-hmm.